Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel and Adam, and tonight we're going to be doing the second episode of Horror Express. We're going to go further into Clive Barker country, but we'll probably be departing and heading into other pastures after that. Tonight we're talking about Hellraiser. So this is a 1987 horror film known for, you know, gore and it's sort of, I don't know, S&M qualities that it brings to the horror genre. It's a very, uh, now I would say quite a tame movie, actually, compared to a lot of stuff that's been out. One of, one of the things I noticed when I was watching it was, wow, this is this is kind of a slow movie. Um, but, but I remember it being shocking when it first came out. And I remember, it, uh, to me, it was always like, you know, the the sort of movie that you go to when you're talking about gory, you know, films that, that, that deal a lot with things like needles going through flesh and that sort of thing. So, um, so I don't know who wants to give the rundown of the plot this time. Do, do, you know, we just need a quick synopsis here. Who feels like they have a strong enough grasp of it to, to weigh in. I don't know. I mean, you want to take this one? Like, I think I probably could. Like, I think both of us at this point have like recently, like indulged in not only the movie but the novella it's based on so and it's not like a super complex plot or anything you know so it's about a this guy frank who gets a you know a puzzle box which in the in the novel uh, i i got the clive barker reading of the novel and he uh instead of calling it the lament configuration which i thought was a really cool name he re- refers to it by the uh, the french name which is the la Manchon configuration which i thought sounded kind of kooky and creepy Anyway, he gets this puzzle box, and it, apparently, like, it's kind of like a, it's got a real Pandora's box vibe, you know. Um, and he works it because he wants he's basically a burned out hedonist, and he wants a new, deeper, like almost like surreal kind of pleasure. And it turns out it just summons these like hellish creatures called cinnabites that, to them, pleasure and pain are like these these heights of. They're, they've gotten so far in both that they've kind of unified and come all the back around to this hellish torture. And so they kind of just drag him off to the dimension. And then the place that he gets, like, torn out of this reality, like his brother and his wife, who are really, like, have a very tense relationship, um, move into it. Uh, inadvertently, in moving in, they spill some blood on there, which kind of summons a wraithly version of him back. Turns out the wife had an affair with him, uh, and she wants to... Um, like when she realizes that it's him, like she wants to help him out. Uh, and so she's into this weird psychotic relationship where she's luring guys in there under the auspice of seducing him, killing them. And he's like devouring their blood and like getting more flesh on his bones. Um, in the, in the book, uh, the character's a little different, but in, in the movie, uh, his daughter, Chrissy gets kind of tangled up in this whenever she stumbles in on one of these horrible things gets Lamont configuration, which I don't think is named in the movie. I think it's just the box. I think they name it in the it. sequel. I think Hellraiser 2 is where they start calling it the Lament configuration. Yeah, they, they start getting more of a kind of a, a universe in the second movie, but I don't want to diverge too much. Uh, anyway, uh, she also inadvertently summons the Cenobites and is like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, instead of dragging me off to hellish torture, how about I get you Frank back? Because he seems to have slipped your noose. And so she has to go and uh, her the father gets killed and skinned and Frank masquerades as her. And there's this disastrous end where like it comes to a head. There's Cenobites and gore and people getting torn apart by chains. And, uh, and there's kind of a happy ending because she actually does slip them and Frank goes back to hell. Oh. And Happy yeah. ending with her father <laughs> dead and, you know, all the, yeah, this, uh, the best version of a happy ending that a movie about like S and M demons could possibly have. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I think. I, also, speaking of which, I just got to say they 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 constantly talk about how they 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 sort of you know reach the heights of pleasure and pain, and there's no division between the two. I I think after seeing this again that it's all pain. I don't see an ounce of pleasure in anything that the Cenobites <laughs> are doing. Um, yeah, no, there's not. They it's they straight up like they don't even there's no foreplay with pleasure or anything in the book even like they go into a little bit more where it's more yeah. about like sensory heightening and it becomes torturous and then they introduce horrific torture on top of that but in this one like he's messing with the box chains come <laughs> yeah. flying out with hooks on him and he is screwed within seconds like they literally tear him apart so it's like yeah i think he might have you might want to keep the warranty on that one frank <laughs> so I don't know, Adam, how did you feel about this one? I, I don't know how long it's been since you saw it last. 
I don't know how long it's been either. It's probably been at least 20 years since I've seen it. But uh, I, I like it. I thought it held up really well. It's a much, it's, you know, comparing it to Nightbreed, Nightbreed is a much more ambitious, bigger budget, mm -hmm. but it's kind of messy. I mean, this, aside from some change, it's a pretty solid adaptation of the book. Uh, it, it does, I think, I think it just pulls off everything it's trying for. It's, uh, it's just, it's a really nice low budget horror movie that, uh, just has great atmosphere. Yeah. It's kind of like a nice one, le pretty much one location horror movie, right? Like they're mostly in that yeah. house and, and there are special effects, but a lot of it is the build up to them. And, you know, some of the special effects are great. Some of them, you know, are a little bit. You know, I, I see I, Joel's not too impressed. Um, but uh, I think the yeah. special effects I, in I, general are great, with a few standout stinkers. Yeah, there, well, there is one that really yeah, stinks, which I want to talk about. But um, I'm sorry, what were you going to yeah, say, Adam? On the whole, it's uh, and I, I would disagree that I would disagree that it's a slow movie. Some people say it's slow, and I I don't think there's anything to cut. I don't think this movie has any fat on it. I think if you take away, like, I mean, yeah, there are scenes like the kind of family drama and stuff but i don't think the movie works without those no it and, just becomes and that's not what i was really lot. saying what, what i so, meant was like it's slow in a good way like it's very engaging and it's not like it it's and it's not like it's wasted it's only like an hour and 33 minutes or something so it's not like it's yeah. uh you know <laughs> but what i meant was i think to like a younger viewer who's accustomed to more rapid uh fire you know, pacing in films of today that they would find it slower. Do you know what I mean? Because it just it's just paced like an older movie is all I meant. Um, mm. you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. That was just my thought when I was watching it was I think this would be kind of slow for, you know, when you compare it to like a lot of the movies that have come out lately. Um, but I don't know if, yeah, you, if you disagree, definitely weigh in. Cause... Well, I, I think well, yeah. one of the things I dislike about modern movies is how impatient they are to, like, get in your yeah. face. Uh, it's like, okay, yeah, you're going to be an intense roller coaster ride of boring. Like, um, one of those movies, I'm trying to think of that. I think it's called The Insidious Movies, where it's, like, got. I, I can't. It's like a monster, I guess, but there's no cohesiveness to It's just a bunch of random, scary things that popped into the producer's head. I, and they're just. They keep like getting right in your face with it and cramming the camera right in. It's like, oh, it's so spooky, and they've got Tiny Tim playing as like their their cute but creepy music. And I, I'm sorry, Tiny Tim is the opposite of cute but creepy. He's just creepy, but, but yeah, in, a, in a way that's disarming and and, I, and charming yeah. and not at all frightening. Yeah, the kind yeah, of stuff I was find a lot of fast paced stuff to be more boring than stuff that is technically slow. I would agree. It's like I just don't engage with it at all. It's well, one of the one of the reasons why I like slower paced movies is if the characters are good and the story is good and the atmosphere it's building is good, you want to spend time with all of those things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so and this is a movie like that where I'm happy to spend the time at that house. Um, but what I mean is it doesn't it doesn't rapidly change from location to location. It doesn't you know it spends a lot of time doing things like Julia is at the top of the stairs and the and the daughter is at the bottom of the stairs and we're gonna sort of you know feel we're gonna. We're gonna expose you to how We're that feels. Gonna have suspense yeah, suspense. In a movie, instead yes. of us jumping to the jump and, scare and the special effects. And they're not gonna <laughs> reveal everything all at once. Do you know what I mean? And I know again. I guess why that maybe surprised me a little bit is because when this movie came out, it was sort of considered excessive in a lot of ways and sort of you know grotesque and you know like hold on, there was a quote from Roger Ebert who he he decried Ooh. it for its bankruptcy of imagination. Um, really? so, wow, yeah, really? so, oh yeah, oh yeah, I mean, this yeah, was one of those movies that, stop, it's aged, I think, a lot better, and become more respected, but I think when it first came out, it was kind of, you know, it, especially older horror, like, you know, I had people in my family that were fans of the older movies, and stuff like this was considered, like, oh, they're just, they're just cutting people up just for the excitement of it, and, you know, just for the shock value, and so, um, I was pleasant. I should have said I was pleasantly surprised by how much time it invested in building the story and in you know establishing yeah, pacing, well, and stuff like that. It's a weird complaint to make about Hellraiser because it came out like right near the tail end of the whole slasher movie trend, where every movie was just a dumb series of teenagers being killed yeah. by some psycho killer, and it's like, and this actually does have a story to yeah. it which was you know so it's it's a weird weird complaint to make because it, it's actually 
But again, think about it from the, you know, it's like you're a parent from that time period. All you're focused yeah. on is, you know, okay, it's got it's got gore like Friday the 13th, plus it's got like S&M attire and like these weird freaky demons. And so, you know, that's that's where I think yeah. the, uh, like I said, it's, it's obviously aged, I think, much like it's become more respected, I think, over time. Um, I mean, in a horror fans, yeah. complaints are going off the movie poster or a TV ad too, not actually watching the movie. So yeah, I would admit, too. But but, uh, <laughs> but at the time, I think I think um, you know I think I think maybe what might have happened was it probably got viewed through the lens of the fact that like it was you know then people were just lumping it in with those kind of movies that you mentioned. Do you know what I mean? Like sure, they, you know, that's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, they just kind of were like, oh, here's another one of those movies, yeah. and they start complaining about it before they even, you know, watch it. But yeah, uh, it also, like, I don't know how much stock I put in Roger Ebert for judging this variety of movie because, like, he didn't like uh, Blue Velvet either, which was another incredible you know, feast of like rich, strange surrealism, and it just yeah, he was I remember his Yeah, he like got like physically ill watching that movie and like he was clearly like emotionally put out by it but it's part of the point of that movie it is supposed to get under your skin and make you upset mm-hmm. in that way and like yeah. it's the, the female characters in that one are the ones who are, you, are like really endangered and kind of like emotionally tormented through it uh, and I think that he's just squeamish when it comes to women being in jeopardy uh, and there's a, plenty of women in jeopardy in this movie so or rather there's two that are in a shit ton of jeopardy yeah I mean that happens with a lot of movies. They come out and they're you know, people don't. Uh, time has a way of sort of establishing what movie actually is, uh, you know, is, is is you know is quality and what movie is uh, uh, is not. And a lot of times the immediate reaction people to have have to them is is more about what they ate that afternoon than you know uh-huh. what what how good the movie was. You know, of course yeah, yeah. What a you get that a lot with ebert i think i think you get that a lot with ebert actually because sometimes he does do really fascinating reviews and other times you're like oh he was just in a bad mood that well day. and to be fair <laughs> they reviewed so many films that you have yeah. to imagine it was just like you know you get him on a bad day and it's just like okay i'm going to unload on this sucker um no i I, I get it. I mean, as someone that does review, just reviewing movies a case on this podcast, there's times I'm just not in the mood to watch a movie. Yeah. And it, like, I, I, I'm like, oh, I, I have to meet it halfway, but it's, it can be hard. And so, but I was, I really enjoyed going back to this film. It's, it's one of those movies again, that, uh, I, I, I think that it, it was, it was important in shaping my expectations about what horror is supposed to be about and uh, how, how gore can be used well and artistically. Do you know what I mean? There, there's sort of a, uh, this is definitely on the gory side for sure, but he's kind of, Barker's almost like the Cheng Che of horror. He kind of paints with blood. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like there's yes. that scene with the shroud when the, in the dream where the shroud starts to bleed and you're like, Oh my yeah. God, that looks like a painting. That's like not, that's not just random bloodletting. It's it, it, there, there's there's like thought behind that the construction of that scene. And, yeah, um, the whole scene where where uh, Frank comes back, where his corpse is just kind of growing out of the uh, floor, is that's just that's just a great scene for a for a low budget horror movie. It's pretty amazing. No, I so I, I agree. What, what was that, Joel? It's so greasy. I, I forgot about that. Because I remember that scene because it kind of burns itself into your memory. But watching it again, I was just struck by just how, like, wet and, like, mucal it was. It was really yeah. wonderfully grotesque. And I, and I don't want to harp on the same issue I harped on last time. But this is, again, why practical effects for me, ha- like, especially with gore. Because I, I can touch that. I, I feel like if I was in the room, it would gross me out to get close to that thing. Because I know it's going to be wet. Do you know what I mean? I know it's not yeah, just... Well, Frank, anytime Frank touches someone when he's, like, skinless and he's, like, leaving the blood prints or whatever, it's like, if you had a CGI Frank, it's like, you don't get that. Whereas anytime Frank was, like, touching anyone yeah. or anything, I'm just like, yeah. And, and, and I get sometimes you can see the strain of the practical effects in a movie like this, but I don't care because... I'd much yeah. rather have the believability of that. That practical effect is in the room, and it's just as gross yeah. as I imagine as, as I'm seeing. But um, I think the, the the weakest effect I think in the movie, and I don't know if you guys will agree with me, is the the Draco Lich, for lack of a better descriptor, at the end of the film. The, uh, yeah, the skeleton. He's in the middle too. Yeah, yeah. 
the the scare that was almost certainly put in there because of test audiences. Yeah, I hated that goddamn thing. You can see the wheels on the stupid thing whenever they're like, chasing around the hallway, and I'm just like, oh, Wait, it's got no, a range no, of no, motion. there's two things. There's the thing that, that comes through the hallway after is a different thing than the thing at the end. Oh, oh okay, that thing. thing. The thing that takes away yeah. the cube at the end. I'm talking uh, about the skeletal dragon that the, uh, I think Clive Barker plays the hobo in this, that, uh, that eat, he... eats the mag. That was Clive Barker, wasn't it? I don't know. I didn't realize that. I, 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 uh, I, I, I let me let me look because I've always assumed it was him, but I don't. Yeah, he's the like Alan in the Moore scene, and then he, uh, he does look like Alan Moore. Oh my god! <laughs> I could see Alan Moore just deciding to wander on set and eat crickets one day, and they're like, "Get the camera on it, him." It doesn't yeah. say. I have always assumed that was Clive Barker, but maybe I'm wrong. So I honestly don't know. But the hobo, the Clive hobo Barker. that eats the maggots, he then turns into the dragon. Bone oh, demon oh thing. right, yeah, that's kind of. I don't I mean, get that because, like, what is he? A wizard, dragon? What is this Mortal Kombat? I mean, I, I I did read the book when I was in high school. I don't remember if that comes up in the book or not. Does it? Doesn't. Okay, no. so no, it's but, some crime lord or something that happens to have Lamont configuration at the beginning of the book, and then he it likes it. It's mentioned for like one line. It's not some magical skeleton man. Yeah, because yeah, that's dumb. But no, for me, it's the thing that chased her in the midpoint in the last part of the movie, whatever that thing. Oh, that's the, that's I don't know how I would describe that one. Um, it's 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 a it's got a really strange structure to it. It's kind of like a banana, and the bottom of the banana is like a, I don't know, like a fetus-like monster, right? Is that the yeah. one that? You, All right. Yeah, I but mean, I know that's a horrible like, analogy, but it's the only thing I can think of to describe the creature. It's uh, like. The design of the creature is good. Let me be clear about that. The design and the idea of it, its presentation is all good, but they it was really like a little bit further than they could make look I'll, convincing on. Film. I'll tell I'll tell you what was bad about that one. It wasn't even the creature. It was the fact that when 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 it was off camera and it attacks the guy, you just see like one of its appendages slap him in the face, and it just uh, looked so silly. It didn't it didn't it didn't look like a like a like a ferocious like, like monster. A parody, yeah, yeah. Well, when it's trying yeah. to grab the the configuration, you can just see its little flippers waddling at it, and I'm like, come on. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I remember thinking that distinctly during that slap in the face part. It's like you have this thing and you create this monster, and then it's gonna. And I was like, I could. So I, it's been so long since I've seen. I couldn't remember if that guy survived or not. I'm like, oh, is it gonna kill him? And it's like, boom. You know what it's like? Him in the face. And it's just like, it's like it doesn't even look like it hurt. You know, it doesn't even look yeah. like a strong slap. And I'm like. That was yeah, that was disappointing. Here's what it's better like. If it didn't hit him at all. It would have kept the monster. It, made, it just took all the fear of the monster away. It did. It did. It would be like having a T Rex in a movie and having the T Rex slap somebody instead of biting them. Do you know what I mean? It's like yes. it's like a Jurassic so, Park. The T Rex slaps the kids instead of tries to eat the eat the car. Do you know? It it just lo suddenly it looks ridiculous because it's got these little dinky hands and yeah and is it using the most terrifying part of its body to attack? Um, but uh, but all right. So why don't we talk about the Julia character and the Frank character because they're sort of central to the story and their relationship is important. And I'm curious uh, how how you guys thought that worked in this film. Actually, I made the point before the podcast that I felt like Frank was the main character of this movie, and you called him the villain, which I yeah, I don't think he's apt. the main character. I think the main character is Kirsty. If there's a main character, she's the one that you're supposed to be rooting for. And supposed to... Yeah, she's she's the deuterogatist, man. Byronic hero. It's all about Frank. I know, Adam. How do you feel about it? Do you are you swayed or? I mean, the the, the the way this movie is set up. I mean, it is kind of an interpersonal drama. I think putting it into a you know you've got like you, you basically got this interaction between the characters that's more complex than one is trying to do something mm -hmm. and no one else is. You got Larry who's trying to patch things up with his wife. You've got his Julia who's who who's basically interested in Frank. You've got this whole love triangle thing going on between... Well, actually, yeah, you've got this love triangle thing going on there. And, of course, in the book, it's another layer because it's a four-way... It's a, it's a yeah. four-way thing there, but... Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I, think, I think the whole protagonist model doesn't necessarily fit with the movie. It is but, a bit uh, too interpersonally sophisticated it kind of re repels that kind of archetypical analysis i'll grant you that yeah on the other hand frank's the best character and shut up <laughs> <laughs> i don't know honestly as far as performances i i think the guy that plays larry does the best i mean well he's he even plays frank for part of the movie yeah that's too. true that's i just true. 
I I really I well I I think he gets the best performance that actor oh, like yeah, the way best he shifts actor, definitely and, and, and best playing, character playing remains playing Larry Frank. what's that well yeah. best character best actor yes best character remains Frank yeah so. I I will have to say I agree with yeah. Adam that the guy who plays Larry really holds the movie together yeah. I I this time around though I could not I could not get over the fact that he looks almost exactly like David Foley. Like he, he's he's got like a David Foley meets Vince McMahon kind of face, and uh, I can see the Vince McMahon yeah. thing. David okay, the Foley David Foley you can't see. To me, but I I'm totally getting. Okay, the Vince I well what I but I couldn't get over that for some reason. Um, but <laughs> but I think that uh, I think that that he really holds it together because he's got to be like the he's kind of like the normal guy in the movie. He's the person that really kind of grounds the film in some sort of reality. He's the one that wants like the simple things. Do you know what I mean? And if it what if that character wasn't there, then then all you have are these, you know, <laughs> this woman that's willing to murder because she's lusting after Frank, and Frank who's just lusting after everybody, and and I guess Kirsty the daughter, but without the father in there, the daughter doesn't really have any connection. Yeah, to... I think Kirsty has the weakest performance out of any of the main characters, which is where her, her character sure she's just, she's not terrible, but there's just points where I feel like she she just doesn't quite rise to it in some of the some of the scenes. So okay, she, she so, so why don't we rank them then? Who do you think is the? Uh, so you think that Larry, the guy who played Larry, is the best performance in the movie? Yeah, who no, no. Aside from Pinhead, whose presence, I mean, doesn't need to be expounded upon. Like you can just watch this movie, yeah, and that guy. And, is unbelievable. and to be clear, I think we're kind of talking about the characters, not the not the Cenobites at this point. Um, because that is a whole other level of of, of discussion. Um, so we're talking about characters or actors at this point. Okay, there's so, a distinction here. So so yeah, Andrew Robinson yeah. played Larry. So that that uh, that's who we're putting at at the number one. Who who would be after him in terms of performance? Do you think? I put well, I mean, Julia and the guy that played Frank at the same level. Yeah. they're both they both they're both solid. They do a really good job. Yeah, but, uh, and then yeah. yeah. I think everyone else is just to kind of like hover somewhere below that. There's not a lot of characters in this movie. No. Um, I, I think I disagree with you about Christy, though, because like, remember the scene where she first encounters the Cenobites and Chatterbox like shoves his fingers in her mouth? Like the raw terror she has in that scene is pretty oh, she convincing. Is, she is very good in parts. I just feel she's uneven. There's like parts like where like, I don't know. It's like, I think that the, like, I think it's like in the first scene with Frank, I, there's moments where I just don't feel like she's quite selling it. But the other scene, she's really good. She's just uneven. It's not like she's, it's not like she's just bad all the way through. But I'd, I I'd probably I, need I to watch it again. And, and and there's a couple of moments where I'm like, nah, that 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 line reading doesn't land for me. But uh, <laughs> interesting. I, I didn't really notice. Uh, there's something that felt particularly awkward about it. Keep in mind. I did just rewatch this, the Star Wars prequels with my kids, so my bar for bad <laughs> acting has been horrifically lowered very recently. Okay, um, that, so, that'll do yeah. it. Um, no, she's 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 totally solid. It's just uh, it's just I don't know. I just don't think she's on the same level as everyone al else. Also, horror movie acting is not always the same. like, especially for characters whose role is largely to be chased around and terrified. Like they're yeah. uh, they're often you know. Like I almost don't even notice because I kind of expect them to be somewhat not that greatest actor in the in you know yeah in the world. Um, there may have been some of that too with my expectations. Was there? I'll watch it again a little more critically. I think. Yeah, I, did, um, I can't say I really observed anything in particular about her, whether she you know good or bad. Um, I I did I, I I was impressed by the Pinhead performance. I hadn't really you know it's been a while since I'd uh, seen this. And, you know, I mean, I always, you know, you have that image of Pinhead in your mind, but I always kind of lose track of the voice. And, and obviously it's enhanced. The so that voice and the line delivery is really, really yeah. good. Yeah, it's a very yeah. small, he doesn't have that much dialogue to deliver. No, the, the Cenobites aren't even in this movie until like the last third of it or so. Like they, they're very, very minimal presence. Which is good, yeah. And it's as far as, as far as uh, Doug Bradley goes, hard. It's, it's interesting too that, you know, it isn't, you know when they made this movie it wasn't as apparent to them how iconic he was going to be because like you know when the cenobites all get dispatched by the puzzle box he's the first one to go yeah it's like if they had any idea how much a part of the franchise he was going to be instead of having that goofy 
you know, Flipper Monster be the last one. It would have been Pinhead would have been the last yeah. one to go, not the first one to get sent home. I don't even but, think uh, Butterball, Butterball doesn't even, like, die in this movie. He, like, some rebar falls on him. Yeah, that's right. The last that's one, right. So, so. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. Oh, I mean, two, Revenge of Butterball. Yeah. But uh, it's it's uh, it, it is interesting kind of watching in the context. You know, obviously he does, he isn't called Pinhead in the credits or anything. He's just Lead Cenobite is his uh, is his name in the credits. Also, I do think a different actor played Frank when he was skinless, according to the mm-hmm. cast information. I here. wondered about that. Yeah. I wondered about that actually. Yeah, I didn't look it up though. But uh, yeah. I mean, it was hard to tell obviously because he's got you know the makeup job is extensive, so. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I really liked I like the the I like the setup because I like the fact that you have this this Julia character who's like in love with Frank because he's ob- he's obviously like a he's like a, a you know bad boy type character right like he's like the, the the quintessential like outlaw and Larry is like super safe super normal you know you know like you, you see him at the dinner and he's just like you know it's just like it's about <laughs> as vanilla as you can get right vanilla but successful. Do you know what I mean? Like a very stable guy. And, and yeah, the party scene, I have to say, watching it in blind, it's always stuck with me and my friends used to make fun of. Like, it's something like, this is the night of the paper hat. You can't go. And it's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a, like a weird, weird line. Well, I uh, actually only liked that line because it does stick out. But also, it, it kind of makes you think like, oh, they, they have social connections. They have like little in-jokes and memes. Yeah. Like, there's, there's a reality to this. That's interesting. I was it? Yeah, I wasn't really insulting the line as much as it's, it's the fact it's always stuck with me is because it it just works for that character. Yeah. It's the kind of goofy thing he would say to his friend that is like perfect. Night of the paper hat. Well, <laughs> I, I like that because this movie does an interesting thing, despite it being kind of like lambasted, I guess, for it being like excessively gory. It really shows the intimacy and personal horror of murder a lot. Uh, like yeah. whenever mm. she's luring people in to die, their deaths are are like are they hit you even though they're not particularly gory they're just upsetting because they're people and they're yeah, getting yeah. their lives and they, are being destroyed and they kind of they kind of lull you in because the first guy is almost a little bit rapey so it's a little bit more okay do you know what i mean like 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 because she she seems mad at him over his attitude in their exchange and so it it just feels more justifiable, but then they just get progressively less and less just pathetic guy yeah. she's luring in. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, like the guy who's just lonely. It's yeah. just like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 I like the way that they do that. Because the first guy you're actually kinda like, okay, this guy might kind of deserve this. Like he was potentially about to rape her if she didn't, you know, if she didn't go in this yeah, direction. He has that with moment him. where he's like, You're gonna change your mind, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. He's like really intense and you're like, Okay, well maybe this guy needs to get taken out. But like all the other guys, not really. Well, and also and just in the just the like the horror movie universe laws, like the the scummer you are in any way, the more the more you're sort of like you know, uh, you, you're just more acceptable as the next victim. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's but, the thing. Yeah. There's a relationship between how much the audience wants to see you face justice and how yeah. morally acceptable it is for to them for you to be horribly killed. But um, also, I like that she's the one doing it. She's the like. When I remember this movie, I remember her bringing Frank in and Frank killing the guys. I forgot like, that she oh, smashes she them in the back of the head guys. with a hammer, which is that's got to be the most intimate type of murder for a movie. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's not that's not an it's not easy to watch. It's not easy to listen to, and it it takes it takes full commitment to the to to, to the sin that you're committing to do it. There are no clean kills in this movie. No one yeah. gets stabbed and dies or shot and dies or yeah. something and dies. They get, like, brutally pummeled and they are dying until they are further injured and mutilated. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah, no, in fact, there's one guy that, like, comes out of the room and is like, help me to Kirsty, yeah. right? And he's reaching out his hand. And so it's it's very, they draw it out and they don't. Yeah, because a lot of movies would do the thing where, like, she smacks him on the back of the head, he collapses, and then, like, you just hear Frank devouring him or whatever it is Frank does. And, uh, uh, you know, this movie really kind of was like, nope, they fall on the ground and they're still alive and kicking. And there's, you know, there's, it's just, it's just a, it, it, it raises the moral complexity of the scenario considerably. So that's not just like a clean, easy kill that you can forget about. You have to, you kind of have to stick with it. 
which is uncomfortable, but that's kind of part of the point, I think. Well, it is uncomfortable, and also there's something about it that kind of links it to the carnal elements of this movie, which are very present. Um, again, it, it was part of, the, I think, the kind of grotesque appeal of the movie that it had that carnality to it, that, that thing where there was, like, physicality and sexuality. Yeah. And there's something about, like, in the, they because they have a love scene in this movie, and there's also something kind of vicious about that scene, where it's yeah. like, this isn't comfortable to watch. It's not sexy. It's, you know, it's kind of like, ugh. And I like that they understand that there's, like, this sort of, visual visceralness that connects those acts throughout the movie and so there's this wonderful echo that goes on whenever you're seeing characters like you said committing to a physical altercation of whatever variety in this movie so so yeah it, it makes it rich to watch and it, it makes it again like i said intimate well especially i mean the carnal part is impossible to ignore because that's the foundation of julia and frank's relationship mm -hmm. and julia's motivation seems to be she wants to help restore frank so she can have sex with them basically right well that's exactly like, what she does they yeah. consummate yeah. <laughs> yeah so so i mean that's that's definitely you know what's going on there and i think um i think it's also interesting to sort of contrast you know her attraction to to frank who's like this you know he's a hedonist he's a picture of sort of unrepentant virility and like uh you know just i don't know what you would call it just like he, he's just it. a you know just like an animal basically and that's what she's drawn to and then uh larry who uh i like the name choices too frank and larry those are good choices for these characters larry who's like afraid of his own blood do you know what i mean like you know like 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 you can tell frank is not the kind of guy that is gonna even look down if he gets a cut like that but larry like stumbles into the room when he cuts his hand on a nail and like asks julia to look at it because he can't even bear the sight of the blood and then says he's gonna faint he's gonna throw up and he's just this you know he's a very stable very nice very successful guy but he doesn't seem like he has you know like as much of a sex drive as frank or as much of a wild side as frank and so it's they're almost opposite characters, you yeah. know, because I mean, contrast that scene when you think about it. Think about the way that scene is blocked or not mm -hmm. blocked, but like the way it's paced in the movie. He stumbles in. He's rejecting the, the function of his body of bleeding. Right. Yeah. And he's completely pushing it as far away from as he can't tolerate it. The next immediate scene is Frank reassembling himself from that blood and turning yeah. into mucus and bone and like just howling like a monster yeah. like. That's how contrasted they are. Yeah. Well, know? not just that, but that scene when he, with the leading up to that scene when he's carrying the furniture, the bed, up the stairs, that's being juxtaposed with Julia. The flashback of Julia and Frank having sex to the point that like the bed like hitting the 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 wall on the way up is like enhancing the sexual experience in the flashback, right? Like, so it's a uh, it kind of it is like a clear contrast where you know Larry is you know. He's more about building a home or something and more about, you know, again, he's just this boring guy. The most exciting thing he does in the movie is carry a mattress up the stairs and then cut his hand. That's about that's about as exciting yeah, as the guy really, gets. He never rises much further than that in the yeah. action hero, does he? Yeah. And, um, and not until not until Frank gets a hold of him and wears his skin. But then at that point, he's not Larry anymore. So, yeah, he takes that skin for a ride, man. Um I'd also like to point out, I was thinking about this too, like the seduction scenes are completely different with the characters too, because they both try to seduce the same woman. And like whenever Larry does it, like she's just like, well, the, I mean, Frank's in the room at that point and like cutting a rat open, he's just like peeling it like an onion and she's freaking out and telling him no, no. But that's what Larry has his back turned to this and he interprets it as her saying no to him. Yeah. And he takes the rejection and leaves frustrated. But Frank like, Whenever he seduces her, he, like, just takes her shirt off, takes out a knife, and, like, cuts her bra off. Like, there is no rejection in his mind at all. Like, again, they're so opposite. Damn it. I'm respecting this movie more and more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely got layers to it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know, to get into the, uh, into the book, I, I think there's even more layers in the book. Because in the book, Kirstie is, uh... You know, she's actually not the daughter. She's a friend of Larry's and uh, who's the same age as them. And uh, she's basically someone that's in love with Larry. But Larry's gone off and married Julia. <laughs> and uh, which which I find interesting because in the movie, both Larry and Kirstie's goal, they're they're 
you know, their motivations are all for the most part good. It's like there's kind of a purity to it. Whereas in the book, Kirsty is jealous of Julia. So the yeah. fact she's the one that discovers that Julia is up to all this stuff comes from her wanting to yeah. wanting to break up this relationship so she can be with Larry. And uh, and of course, you know, with Larry, when you give Larry a character that is actually that actually cares about him, but he decides to go off and marry this woman who's just pretty, but is just using him for his money. It uh, it just it just kind of makes everything even murkier. But uh, yeah. uh, it, it made sense to it made sense what they did in the movie. I think from a movie it, perspective, it did. But it does subtly change things, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. like because I always I never really got the rules of how the Cenobites worked. Like I, I think I was used to the first time I watched this movie, I was much younger, and so I was used to thinking about movies in a moral dimension. And this is a universe in which there is no morality. Not really. There's, there's like, yeah. the polite lie of society, but real, like, cosmic morality, like you'd see in, like, stuff that kind of infests other weaker movies. That shit is gone from here. And yeah. so the scene where she summons the Cenobites, Christy does, and she's, like, bargaining. Like, first of all, there's no sin there. She doesn't do anything evil. She's fucking around with a box, and the demons show up to torture her forever. Not because she's evil or deserves it, but because she did the wrong thing at the wrong time, a complete victim of circumstance. Yeah. And so, like, that always, like, struck a weird dissonant chord with me when I was a kid. Now that I'm an old man, though, and I'm, like, this pitiless nihilist and life has kicked me a, a whole bunch, I'm like, okay, yeah, no, that makes total sense. That's fine. Well, that's how life works. Life, life, right. doesn't, life doesn't give you bad things just because you were bad you know right. there's sometimes... no karma in this movie yeah uh there is a weird kind of legality to it because in in the movie and in the book and they make this clear in the book frank has to confess who he is and reveal who he is mm -hmm. to the cinnabites who are kind of like haunting christy after she opens the box before they do anything they they won't even interfere well i'm like it goes on for a long time when she's in the room in the, in the house with them and knows frank is in her dad's skin and he's like trying to kill her and he's chasing around the house. It's like a, a real intense set of scenes. And you're like, aren't the Cenobites here for Frank? Isn't, wasn't that the deal? And uh, they were, but she had to trick him into saying that it was him. And like the book makes that really clear where it's like, you must make him confess. There's some like quasi religious legality to like the way they operate, which is, it makes them such wonderfully alien characters Another little nuance to them. I like. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think I think the crime that the box, the crime that you're committing with the box is just curiosity. It's just yeah, that's really it's, what it's it a is. Very, it's the you know you're opening the door that you're not supposed to open. Basically, that's the that's I think the idea there. Um, you know, so I mean, I'm sure there's more you could get deeper into it, but uh, but I don't. Know, I kind of like that. I kind of like that idea of well, you know, it's 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 it's, it's sort of like the same thing with. It, with like you know, there are just some things man is never meant to know. You know, you know if you if you if you if you if you go there, you know you might you might end up on a chain in the Cenobites layer. That's just you know how this universe works. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It is... I mean, I think to an extent, you know, you don't want to. You know, I mean, I, I don't think you know, with having read a lot of Clive Barker's stuff, I don't think there's necessarily a lesson to yeah. the story. It's like he's he's got he's you know obviously there's meaning behind things to an extent, but there's not like oh yeah, there's not it. There, it's not it's not you know, it's not a fable with a with a nice uh, morale at the end there. Moral I mean, he, I think he does have lessons, but I don't think it's I don't think it's about like no. you know why the bad things are happening or any of that stuff. Like the lessons are more to do with the kinds of characters that are present and the complexities yeah. of the human relationship. You see it really clearly in Nightbreed, I think, more than in in this one. You know, this one's obviously kind of more firmly a pure horror movie in, 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 in that sense yeah. where it, it would get in the way if, if he was trying to really give us any kind of uh, obvious moral subtext. But I, yeah, I think... Yeah, I mean, Nightbreed, Nightbreed is a more heroic story with a with a prophesied hero who's going to yeah. come and save everybody and all of that. It's a whole different different kind of thing than Hellraiser. Yeah, really. yeah there, there's no there's no hero in this. Not really. I guess you can kind of say Kirstie is sort of a hero, but not really. She's just a person who gets in over her head and manages to squirm her way out. Yeah, I like I said, they, even, they even made her more heroic in this by giving her pure motives in this mm -hmm. movie by making her the daughter. It's, uh, it's, so it's like... She's they, still not she's, very she's, heroic. Exactly. She's just doing what she needs to do. 
Um, yeah, I almost uh, compared the Lament configuration to just sticking your hand in a blender when it's on. You know, it's it's not really – there's no morality to this at all. There's no lesson to be learned. It's just you really shouldn't have done that, and now you're going to pay a horrible price. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, well, it's like I, I, what I text you, Joel. I said, can you imagine winning at Rubik's Cube and then getting pierced oh, by, yeah. by chain hooks all of a sudden? You know, it's, it's just like yeah, the worst exactly. the worst puzzle box in the world. Oh. What's my prize? Eternal torment. Yeah. Ooh, that's not a good prize. But yeah. this movie has so many classic lines around that, like that we have such sights to show you, you know, oh, all these wonderful yeah. lines that they deliver. Um, you know, it, it's it's it, the one thing that was surprising was just just how how far he could take these concepts and get them into like the the mainstream horror culture like that. Do you know, that that is the yeah. that's the stuff that's 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 pretty astounding when you look back on it. Um and so uh but yeah, I don't know. I think uh I I, I think that uh how, well how far along in the Hellraiser series did you guys go? Did have you guys seen all of the Hellraisers? Have you only seen a certain I've number? I've seen of two. I stopped after two. Yeah, I think I've seen three. I know I've seen the second one. And I'm pretty sure oh, I've, I've seen, seen the third. parts of three. I yeah. saw parts of three on cable, just flipping through, and I'm like, no, I'm not, <laughs> not, not sitting down yeah. to watch this whole yeah, thing. I think that was the one they had a guy with a CD player for a head as a centibite, <laughs> right? But uh... yeah, I, I remember I watched the second one on the recommendations of my friends, and it felt a lot like the the mystique of the centibites was deeply damaged for me yeah. because they all wind up getting killed and turning into like people. And then the doctor guy becomes the Cenobite, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, and there's a big worm, I guess. That was the real it, bad guy? This, okay, part two sure. feels more like a hokey 1980s horror movie than part one. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's like, it's it feels like it's got rules, and the rules are stupid now, yeah. you know? Yeah. The, the first one and feels mysterious and upsetting. The second one is lame. Yeah, part of the problem with the second one, too, is the plot of the second one is that Kirstie's trying to go into hell to rescue her father get his soul back but uh but it, it basically but the guy the guy who plays larry in this was going to be in that movie and after they'd already started filming it he backed out of the movie and they were like uh we don't we have to throw our screenplay away and do something different so it's 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 basically a movie that was kind of being made on the fly and it, and it shows it just it's like i feel like the first half hour was like oh i was like interested and then it just kind of I mean, it it does do some interesting things. You get to see more of that hellscape, dude. You get more of that 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 world bending side of the story, which is cool. But I think I think where it really falters is where Joel said, where it's like the Cenobites just kind of lose their oomph, and the and the doctor, the evil doctor character is not really that. He's less compelling than Pinhead. Do you know what I mean? Pinhead's this this really deep enigma of a person that you almost don't want to know more about and the doctor is just like i don't know he's like a low rent who is the the head doctor in the reanimator remember the head doctor who gets his head chopped off oh yeah he's like oh, a, like yeah, a low rent yeah. version of that guy is how i felt yeah. about the doctor and hellraiser too yeah i mean it's it's a case where i think you know well, like I say making the cenobites humans that were transformed that kind of reduces the universe it's like everybody's really a human is kind of shrinking it down yeah and i don't want to uh, know i don't want the cenobites to be human at all I, no. I want them to be incomprehensible elder gods that just do yeah. things that shouldn't happen yeah. that's what yeah. i want you know and i think i think like like in hellraiser there's things like the box has other configurations that open other things we don't know what they are but it's it's just a fascinating idea that kind of gets your imagination going. It's like, oh, well, you know, is there a good configuration that Frank could have found that would have been actually what he wanted? But uh, it's, yeah, it's it, it's like, I feel like, I feel like there's, there's good ways to kind of expand the world, you know, and let people's imaginations wander a bit. And there's ones which just, where you expand it in a way that ultimately makes things feel smaller. And I feel the sequel does that. Yeah, the the real thing is if you can like if it asks a question instead of giving you an answer, that's what you want. Yes, like, there are other configurations to the box. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a question. Yeah. The Hellraiser, the the Cenobites are just people that wandered into it, and now they have Cenobite powers. Yeah. Oh, I didn't ask for that answer, and I don't <laughs> want it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think I can't remember. I. So with the Hellraiser series, I might have actually gone up as far as the fourth one, Bloodlines, but I can't remember. 
But I think at a certain point they did start delving more into the background of them. I can't I can't be sure because it's been so long. But that I was yeah, a comic I, book too, actually. Okay. Well, I mean, it, there's one where they they show the origin of Pinhead and he's like yeah. a general or something and then yeah. he goes into the box. Was that part gets... two or was that was that a later? No, one? that's like that's like way past part okay. two. That's like part five or okay. something. It's deep yeah. into it. I've Actually, seen, like I've some of those still photos scenes. in Fangoria of uh, of Doug was, Doug Bradley playing but, some some British well, army guy. But see, the, the thing is, both sequels is that like. They they really make it into you go to hell and are in a place in hell and the the box isn't about being in hell it's it's about something that to a human being is hellish and there's a fine yeah. but important line there because again there's a moral and well explored dimension to hell like it's it's all Dante's Inferno after a certain point but this is different than Dante's Inferno and that's what makes it good goddammit. Well, it's like it's like oh, yeah. that's you, you're you have this conception of hell in your head, and it's like no, it's actually something totally different, and uh, and it doesn't really care about your morality either, which makes it a little more scary because it's harder to understand. Um, right, Christy wasn't going to be brought into hell because she had a sinful soul and God was punishing her. That's not what happened here. She she put her hand in the Lamont configuration blender and it it sucked her in. That's what happened. Sorry. Yeah, you know, you know what it is. It's like it's like you're suddenly re- learning that there are rules to the universe that you didn't realize were there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas you know you're walking around with this list of sins that you don't you know, and no, that's not actually what it's about. It's about don't touch the box, and you touch the box, so now you're gonna, <laughs> now you're gonna. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's like a problem with with movie sequels in general is that you have to stick with the elements of the first movie to an extent. And like the thing with this, the, the first Hellraiser movies, you're finding out, oh, there's this whole other layer to reality. And the Cenobites are really just part of that. It's just, you're yeah. kind of, but it's like, after that, all the sequels have to focus on the Cenobites. So yeah. rather than going, you know, obvi- you know clearly if there, there's these other configurations, there's all these things, there's this really multi-layered complex universe, but we're just going to keep tunneling in the same direction until it becomes boring. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I said that you kind of... I, I feel like this movie... I mean, like, centrally, whether or not he's a protagonist, centrally, this movie is about, like, Frank's journey. It starts with Frank. It really concludes in the denouement with, with like, Kersey, but, like, at the end of the tale, it's the end mm-hmm. of Frank. So, sure. like, it's not about the Cenobites. The Cenobites just happen to be the instrument by which he was unmade. You know, they are the uh, agents of his hubris and his hedonism. You know, so you can't do Frank again. You could do someone else, but it would kind of just be Frank's story. Again. And, and I will the say Cenobite, the Cenobites are basically not taking real actions of their own. They'll come and they'll grab someone and they'll torture them. But aside from that, it's like they can't take Frank themselves. They need they need uh, Kirsty to be the one to reveal Frank. It's like, you know, they're they're, they're so limited in their actions that. Uh, you know, they rely on other people to open the puzzle box. Everything they do relies yeah. on someone else to actually take an action before they can act. So, Well, I will say, too, if you focus on Frank the way Joel is doing, then you do kind of get more of a, the movie is kind of about the excesses of pleasure-seeking. And, you know what sure. I mean? So, so it, it does kind of open up that whole line for exploring the movie. Um, because definitely that, that is, you know, particularly we consider the decade, that it was made and all that, you know, it kind of, you know, it, it, you know, certainly kind of gets into the, you know, the consequences that can arise from hedonism or whatever. So, well, that's yeah. the thing though. It's still not a moral tale because in the creation of Frank, we're not given a character that could have sought redemption. His yeah. personality is the engine of inevitable woe. He was I, going to self-destruct. I, I don't think it's about the morality. I think it's more about where is the fear in the movie coming from? What is it that you're afraid of? Is it, you know what I mean? And the stuff that they're tapping into is, you know, you know, like Frank is this guy that he's just like, you know, he just is, just has these endless appetites for pleasure. And where that ultimately leads him is into the Cenobites, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but they're, 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 they're you know, they're chitinous hooks. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Their gleaming embrace. Ooh, ooh, that's so, gross. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I scorched myself out a little. But, uh, but yeah. So you know, I, I, but I, I think I think that's what one of the things that makes the movie intriguing is it operates on a, you know this is like some of the basic stuff going on where you know the fear is coming because you have this just this horrific you know 
body that's reconstituting itself and devouring other people, but also just how he got there in the first place and everything that the Cenobites represent and all that. Um, and also just the way that it handles the visual depiction of pain is pretty, mm. uh, you know, it, it, it makes you wince. Watch, yeah. yeah, it makes you wince. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, a- anything else to add about the movie before we depart? Did we forget anything or was there? Well, I would like to point out Frank's last line always stuck with me where he says, Jesus wept and then he gets exploded uh, by the hooks. I do want to talk about that. that. I feel like yeah. Adam could weigh in on it more for us oh, because, oh yeah. because, because, Jesus wept is not an expletive in the United States. It's something that is an expletive in other parts of the world. It's something that in the in the U.S. we would just recognize it as a quote from the Bible mainly. Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't be something that you would say to, um, you know, I forget why it's used as an expletive in, in other countries, but I know it's sort well, of... I mean, we, we can say here in the Midwest, we will sometimes say exasperatedly, Jesus Christ. And I think yeah. it's kind of used that same way. Is where it the say, same Jesus thing? Jesus wept. Okay. Yeah, I think it's very similar. Okay. So, but what what confuses me is because the writer is British, and I think it's a British movie, but I'm not 100% sure, but they're obviously going for an American audience. I don't know. Am I supposed to be reading that as a biblical quote? Or is he just basically saying, Jesus Christ? Because I think, I think, I think it's got a double meaning. I mean, mm-hmm. one, it's an expletive, mm-hmm. but I think... I don't know. I, I've always thought there's kind of a hint that, you know, obviously he is being tortured, but there is something he's getting out of it in that, yeah. like, you know, when Jesus was put on the cross, you know, it's like, it's it's like, but we're, you know, basically he's he's contrasting his well, way, his reaction. And to also Jesus. that line comes from the resurrection of Lazarus, I believe. I think that's where mm-hmm. that's I know, from. I know. It so does. so maybe he's hinting at his, you know. His res- his own return, his resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, but yeah, there's something to it because he he too is a resurrected character. Yeah. Um, and there's even some ambiguity to the line, biblically speaking, because like it's been interpreted as uh, like exhibiting the humanity of Christ because he's crying for his dead yeah. friend. But it's also been interpreted as him crying for the inability of the human beings around him to recognize his divinity. So like. Hmm. It's yeah. It's I, I went to a Catholic church when I was a kid. I was a Catholic school, so this is the kind of stuff I thought about as a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um... no, that that's an interesting line though, because that's... it is what it's the bodily function is the part that people key on for talking about that being the signifier of Christ's humanity. And this movie is very much about bodily functions, and you know the the, the connect. So you know, right, so... and it makes you wonder about like. Because it's an interaction with the divine, a human interaction with the divine. And this human interaction with this kind of dark divinity is much different, but it has a lot of echoes, doesn't it? Hmm. There's something kind of priestly about the the Cenobites, and there's something kind of, uh, there's something very similar to the crucifixion in Frank's unmaking, and there's something kind of eerie and biblical about his resurrection. So there's some echo there that's, that's... Ooh, I don't know. It's it's eerie and, and and just yucky, and I love it. Yeah, I feel like I, there's definitely some Barker's going for more than just him giving an yeah. expletive. I feel like there there are men. There is. I'm not sure like specifically which of these layers he's going for, but he's going for definitely one of them. Yeah, because well, he doesn't he is... doesn't even say it like an expletive. He doesn't say Jesus no. wept. He says Jesus no, wept. Almost... Right. He says it like a statement of like he's saying something profound, not like he's swearing. Yeah, yeah, that's and it's I, I... it's right after he's like doing that lascivious tongue motion, you know. So like, there's something about it where it's like, it, it is both the expletive and this profound statement of humans' interaction with the divine. Uh, it's a great line. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've always been perplexed by it. Like, I don't think I've ever really arrived at a good answer on it. But I've always been like, why does he say that? And it's never really, it's never really. I've never been able to figure it out. It kind of works because he's kind of going onto this plane of existence beyond, you know, what mm. humans experience. So the fact that we like don't quite <laughs> get it, but we almost yeah. do actually, yeah. actually is kind of, kind of effective. That's true. Yeah, that's, it, that's an interesting point. That same kind of, like whenever you remember a quote someone said from a dream and you're like, that doesn't make any sense <laughs> contextually at all. Well, no, but it made sense when you were dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's one of, that's one of the best lines in the movie. That and we have such sights to show you and uh, I'm sure there's a couple of others that are uh, I uh, my one that I will quote 
is one of my favorite retort quotes when someone asks me a question I don't feel like answering is one of Pinhead's things where, where Christy asks him, what are you? And he says, angels to some, demons to yeah. others in the Pinhead voice. I will straight up though, answer people. Though the thing that is, that reminds me of um, uh, Merlin's statement in Excalibur. Where he says, what did he say? Uh, uh, a dream to some, a nightmare to others. Yeah. You know, see, yeah. <laughs> um, though yeah. that one with the because they were doing the thing where they have to like stop the camera to make him disappear. It kind of had a weird pacing to it, but similar type of sentiment. Um, I remember the big line that was featured in the TV ads at the time was, uh, we'll tear your soul apart too. Oh <laughs> yeah. The big punctuation to the TV. God, the delivery on that is amazing too. <laughs> also another biblical appeal. Uh, atheists aren't afraid of their souls being torn apart, uh, because they don't, they don't believe they have them. But like, if you are if you're targeting a Christian audience and you're going for shock, you attack the soul, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just the idea that you're vulnerable in such an intimate and immortal way is really upsetting. I love that. Yeah. Well, also, I feel like in a movie like this, the debate over whether you have a soul or not doesn't even really matter because you're still going to be physically tortured by the <laughs> Cenobites in the end. Do you know what I mean? It sort of seems like. It's, yeah, because uh, whether or not they're tearing apart your protoplasmic flesh or whether or not they're, like, you know, taking some some higher immortal part of you and annihilating it forever, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. It's it's functionally identical yeah. within the context of the yeah. movie, and that's upsetting. They, they either have the theology or the technology to torture you forever, <laughs> you know, so. I have to steal that line. You are not in the ballpark with quotable today. Brendan. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I loved, I loved the whole, you thought it was the Ten Commandments. No, it's one commandment. Don't touch the box. That's the first one. <laughs> the second one is, I have the technology or the theology to torture you forever. God, to... that rules. I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to compile a book at some point. No, you, know. you gotta put this on a shirt, man. <laughs> See, if I was smart, that's how I'd make my money. It should be your face with the pins in it, so your pinhead, and that should be the quote. I have the technology or the theology to torture you forever. And on the box, it's got the Ten Commandments with a big X through them, and then one commandment: don't touch the box. Don't touch the box. <laughs> that's, that's the Horror Express shirt, folks. You heard it here first on sale at tforever.org.com <laughs> so so I don't know any, anything else on this movie to uh, to cover before we depart and find another destination here we should do ratings or something shouldn't we should do what like ratings or something we should do something else do I think there should be some dating mod to this do you want do, do we want to go into the rating system on this we do it on Wusha Weekend I'm happy to do it here I don't know if uh, I don't know I feel like there should be something of, else I'm not a big fan of ratings well first. how about not numerical how about a final final word that sounds a little more terminal you know like final thoughts for each one of us like what's our conclusion about this movie individually that's fair that's fair why don't you start since you proposed it so me and Adam can, can think out what we're going to say. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so I, I said earlier that when I first watched this movie, I was a younger man and a much more, I think, naive one. And so the movie was a dissonant chord for me. I liked it, but I wanted something else out of it. I think I wanted more of a kind of a Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. thing where from the first scene, it's really intense and the supernatural terror is invading reality. And it's much more subtle than that. It's much more human. And because it's about humanity, the points in which it departs from that and becomes, for lack of a better term, religious, are deeply unnerving. This this movie is about dark miracles transpiring and the sublime not being what we expected. And in that instance, I really feel like Frank is kind of the, the point of view character for us. I think that we're inadvertently going on the same journey that he is we're seeking something from this movie and we really bit off more than we could chew we, we fucked up we violated the one true rule of the universe which is don't touch the box um so my my final verdict is this is a an intelligent deliberate movie that uh has horror the same way that like a surgeon wields a scalpel and i i think i absolutely love it well, on top of that you chumps yeah, I I think you've kind of won me over a little bit on the Frank being the main character thing because I mean he does 
I mean, obviously, like Julia's actions are all dictated by by Frank. You know, she he's the one getting her to go out and kill these people and all of that. So it's uh, and I mean, Frank takes over Larry at the end. And uh, yeah, I I I I can kind of go with that actually. So uh, you you won me over in that respect. But yeah, as far as the movie overall, I feel like this. Of, of the the movies Clive Barker made, I feel like this is the one. If you're just going to watch one and get a feel for what Clive Barker is like, I think this is the one to watch. I feel like it's the one where he really kind of landed it, did exactly what he wanted to do with it. So I'd uh, I'd recommend it on those terms. Yeah, I think I think this is a um, a really good horror movie. It starts out with sort of like an intriguing riddle or puzzle with the box, and I think that's. That's a great way to begin a film, and and then it you know gets into like we were saying like kind of like a it's it's almost like an interpersonal drama for a while with this this really creepy horrible thing in the attic that's looming and is is going to spell the doom of so many people, um, and like Adam said it's a you know it's a gory movie but like uh, but like Joel said it's 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 artistically done it's not um, it's not it's not just you know there's a lot of gore from this period like you know we could recommend you know. <laughs> like anything from like the toxic avenger to um you know something like evil dead or whatever and 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 but the, but the gore here is done in a way that's a little bit i think uh just more thoughtful in general um and and it gets into some interesting uh the horror kind of comes from having like your moral world sort of pulled off from under you do you know what i mean i think that's that's one of the really effective things the movie does, and 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 I agree with Adam. This is this is a really good movie to see if you just kind of want to get a sense of what Clive Barker really really is about. Um, and 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 Nightbreed's a great movie, but it's probably not it's not the best introduction to Clive Barker because this gives you the this is a this is clearly a horror movie. This is a horror mm-hmm. movie in every sense of the word, and Nightbreed is. Uh, it's almost more borderline superhero or fantasy. Do you know what I mean? There's like a that you know you're 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 going on an adventure with these monsters that are more like characters from a superhero story. So um, I feel yeah. I feel, that's, oh, go I was ahead. Say, on that note, just to lump on there, I I feel like the you know the characters in this, everything in here in the, in Hellraiser is driven by the characters, and the characters make sense, and their relationships make sense. Whereas the characters in Nightbreed are just more these archetypes or whatever or they're not really that fleshed out it's like you don't it's it's much harder to think of the people in nightbreed as just being normal people going about their lives or whatever where i feel like i feel like it's easy to picture the people in hellraiser existing just in the real world without the story i think we all have a really good idea of what larry is doing you know at any given (laughs) moment during the day right exactly exactly (laughs) I mean, yeah, and like Julia, and I mean, even Frank, it's like, if he never found the box, I can picture him as a legitimate person. Yeah. It's it's a lot harder to do that with Nightbreed. Yeah, I I would agree with that. So, yeah, it's it's a a good movie. Also, we should mention this was on Prime, so people can see this if they have Prime. You know, it's, it's, uh, I was actually surprised it was on there. I wasn't, usually when, when we think of like, oh, let's do a movie like Hellraiser, Nine times out of ten, what happens is you go onto Prime, and the sequel is free on Prime, but the yeah, yeah. the first one is not. And so I was very happy to see that. Oh no, the original Hellraiser is is, is available on Prime. Um, so it's 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 worth checking out. And uh, and yeah, and we'll be back on. We're probably gonna go into other territory. We'll we'll get back to Clive Barker at some point with um, Candyman probably. But for right now, we we definitely need to go explore other other movies. And I have a few ideas. I'm gonna. Don't worry, folks. I'm going to try to talk them into Cronenberg. We'll see if I'm successful. Oh, you don't need to talk me into Cronenberg. I am on board for. Cronenberg. I already have an ally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it would. It's going to depend on what Cronenberg movie. Um, but uh... <laughs> I always aim for Videodrome, but I usually settle for the fly. So, so anyways, we will we will head out, and until next time, we will talk to you later. <laughs>